Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasenan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Startup Dads, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Jimmy Williams to the show. Jimmy, how are you doing? Yeah, fab. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm very excited. Really great to have you on the show. So, Jimmy, let's jump right in. I'd love to know a little bit about the point in your life when you became a startup dad. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. So there's... It's a little bit of a blur between when we started the company and when I had kids. Certainly, we were, we were already pregnant with our first, when I say we, my wife is already pregnant <laughs> with our first, uh, when we kind of incorporated. I should have known what I was getting myself into. But yeah, I, th- I think there's been sort of lots of kind of interesting experience associated with that. So I've got about a couple of memories I had from the very early bit where they kind of intertwined. So for our business, I guess we're in the insurance space and we're regulating and you kind of need to raise capital very early. So you can't start one of these businesses without capital. So we hadn't even really gone full time. And I remember for some reason, I set up my first ever investor meeting for the day after my paternity leave. Oh, wow. So it was literally 10 a.m. on the day after my paternity leave. And I walked into this meeting room, basically I could barely keep my eyes open. I just was so shocked by how little one small human could sleep and keep me awake (laughs) for the whole time. And we had a rough time. My first, um, he he was healthy eventually, but he had a rough first couple of weeks. So it was a really tough, really tough time. So, you know, that was, that was the very first time I was like, whoa, this parenting plus startup thing is going to be like really, really hard. Amazingly, those investors did invest. They were the first people to literally send me an email saying, we'd love to invest. And and they knew I was the first day back from maternity, even though both parents. So maybe... They knew the deal. At the same time, I remember talking to another ex-founder right around the same time. We were thinking of starting a business and he said, ooh, are you sure about doing this? Like I did that, had kids and started the business at the same time and now we're divorced. And it was a kind of like really early warning of like, maybe this could be the thing that ends your marriage. So that again had a massive impact on me in terms of thinking about this. And at the time it was quite scary, but I really value that interaction now. Well, the risk could be is that you just ignore it as a problem and you're not planning for it to be a problem, whereas clearly it is quite a big challenge. So right from the beginning, the kind of big fusion of dad and startup was all all there straight away. That's amazing. What a story from turning up on day one post-paternity leave and closing your first investment. So I think what a valuable warning conversation to have about going into it eyes open. Speaking very honestly to you, a personal mistake that I made was to underestimate And I tried my best, but to underestimate how hard it would be. And, you know, I'm really interested to know with you going into Eyes Open and how planning looked for you. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea. (laughs) Um, Absolutely no idea how things were going to sort of manifest themselves. And I feel like I tried to get some. So I was working at a business called AT&C at the time. Fortunately, there's quite a few alumni who've gone and started businesses. And so the first thing I did was get a few of those in a room and Basically, like, what's the worst bit? Like, what's, what's the hard stuff? If you had your time again, would you do this again? And I wonder now whether some of their answers might have changed since we, <laughs> since we had those conversations. But 
basically, they gave me a, it's hard, but it's exciting and fun feedback. And I was like, right, no problem. I mean, I think the other thing I didn't appreciate was none of those founders had kids at the time. I had no idea how it would impact things. I wouldn't necessarily have had it any other way. So the other option, I guess, is that you start earlier or later. And I don't know what it would have been like starting it later, but I do have some view of what it would have been like starting a business when I was in my early 20s. So before we were even thinking about kids, I definitely think it has probably for me been better to do it later. So in particular, I know like I'm a workaholic, sort of an aware workaholic and I work very, very hard. And I think if I'd done this without kids, I just would have worked all the time because there would have been nothing to level me on when I get home and have something else to think about, which is an advantage, like you can work more hours, but also, you know, I had less network and less experience. I would have made decisions that were worse on average because I just like, knew less. So for me, at least, it's been better on average to do it now when I've got more network, more experience and a leveler to stop me working all hours. But that also has its challenges too. Yeah. One of the reasons we started this show is to be the antidote to the cliche that all founders of 17 have dropped out of Harvard to have incredible recovery times and can work 80 hours a week without affecting them in many different ways. That's not the reality of life for lots of startup founders. And I think, like you say, the trade-off of what you know, the reputation you've built, the connections you built, all of those things is a complicated one. The biggest challenge I've found of being a startup dad is the change in adapting to routine. Like you, I'm a functioning workaholic, as they call it. I work as hard as I possibly can. I enjoy what I do really deeply. I've got a sympathetic, long-suffering wife who, so long since before we had kids, understands who I am. But I work to a routine and I really benefited from that. And now I don't work to my routine. I'm continuously juggling working around my daughter Evie's routine. But switching us away from the dad's bit for a little bit, because the show's about the intersection of both. Most of the founders and the senior people that I talk to are very keen for a return to the office, but they're trying to then reconcile that within quite a diverse set of opinions, not necessarily broad spectrum disagreement of wanting to return to the office, but certainly not the same level of enthusiasm with their team. So maybe it's different for Urban Jungle, I'm interested to know. How have you found reconciling that between the wishes of your team We'll probably be an interesting case study because I think we've taken probably one of the extremes on the positions. So we got together as a senior team within four or five weeks. Do you remember that bit at the beginning of the first time we were like, oh, this will be over by June, right? Yeah, yeah. And we got together <laughs> and we were like, okay, we've proven now that we can functionally operate remote. And everyone's suddenly shouting about everyone going fully remote. Like, what are we going to do? And I think amongst the senior team, basically agreed that if you had said to me, this is a fully remote company and I didn't work here and started the company, would I apply for a job? And the answer is no. Basically, don't want to work in a remote company. So pandemic aside, would we want to be fully remote? The answer was, you know, in our case, pretty clearly no. That said, we are very flexible with the team. And, you know, whilst the pandemic keeps on bumping and jumping around, we've given the team a lot of flexibility. And no, there's been no single compulsory day in the office since the start of the pandemic. But the office has been open when it can be open at all times. And we, for example, said that we will have a desk for everyone who wants one and manage capacity such that we can do that. I think the team have valued that a lot. I think what's really important when I say that is the reason we've been able to do that quite successfully and we've been very clear since then. So we basically, I emailed the team week six of the pandemic and basically said, look, we are going back. We're going back 100%. This is happening don't move to another country. (laughs) 
you know, if you want to work for us, and we're growing up about that. Like, if you want to work in a remote company, go and work for someone else. But great. Like, and we, you know, we'll wish you luck and help you with that move if that's what you want. But we've more than doubled the team in that time as well. Every time we hire someone, we're like, when we go back, we're going back full time. Is that what you want? So that means when we start to make it more compulsory in the coming months, that that will be much easier because everyone has known that that is coming. And I think what we saw, so it's all a bit bummy again at the moment. This is for anyone listening a bit later on. This is January of 2022. September is we'd already set ourselves up in a pattern that was working where you know, a lot of people were back in the office, but it was still optional. A lot of other people then suddenly went, right, three days a week in the office. And there was no kind of flex in that. And compulsory. certainly a lot of friends I know got very annoyed about doing that. And I think a lot of the time it is about how you communicate with your team about what you're planning to do rather than what you actually do or, or don't do. It's really interesting to hear. We talk about this. It comes up a lot, right? Because ways of working are a key part of managing life as a parent as well. But we've not had that side of things. And, you know, there's a lot of value in taking a position that's clear and unambiguous and sticking with it. Because it, like you say, one thing you can do is select through the front door, right? Whom you're going to work with and how it's going to work with them. And if you're agreed at that point, well, the only thing that can cause a problem is if people change their minds. And that's a process that has to be managed anyway. Yeah, it is a bit colored by having kids though, right, as well. So my eldest who's at school now gets home at 3.30 and makes a lot of noise. <laughs> um, so it's quite hard Particularly to so my wife's working at home, so her company, they're delaying going back maybe until June this year or something. She takes the one place in the house that's good for working, and then there's nowhere for anyone else to work. So it just has meant if the office is open, I've been here because that's so much easier. How do you make it work? Do you have help? What are the hacks or the tricks that you've learned along the way to make it work, to keep yourself sane? Yeah, I know. <laughs> struggle to recommend exactly <laughs> the way we do but i'll tell you how we do it how we manage it so we do have some extra childcare. there's halfway between can't afford and don't want to keep our kids in state school if we can and state social childcare. so our youngest goes to a childminder and the hours of that are decent they're kind of like 8 a.m to 6 p.m but only four days a week so nowhere near as good as a nanny maybe not even as good as a private nursery but it's something and it's reasonably good value our eldest is now at school and the childminder picks him up from school 10 days a week, the same childminder that's after our youngest, who's had him since he was seven months. And then a recent evolution. So when my wife went back to after maternity leave, our second, we got an after-school nanny. We actually used Coral Kids, if you were around. We had Rachel Carell on the show. So I thought, yeah. Yeah, and our nanny through that is great. The option is to not have them for too much time because obviously any nanny support is like really, really expensive. So that, and then we sort of muddle through occasionally a grandparent comes and visits. So my mum was out the weekend and she just did a load of washing for us. That sort of thing does make a massive difference. But, you know, I, I don't know whether any childcare ever feels like enough no. <laughs> to get everything done. No, I agree. I mean, you know, the common theme is you've got to have help in a variety of different ways. It's always changing as your kids grow and their needs change and they transition between different requirements. I think it's important as well to be on board with your philosophy as well. So I'm perhaps at the extreme of this. So I absolutely love my kids to pieces, but frankly, watch my parents probably over-prioritise children and let their own social life and their own work life suffer as a result of that. I'm determined that I will continue to have some sort of life outside of my children and, and work. And the, and I, I was given one of my best friends Basically, he's a New Zealander. 
he hit 18, moved to the UK, and never goes home. He goes home twice a year. And so his parents basically get twice a year visits, or none of them even, but twice a year normally, and, you know, a video call once every other month. I think it's like we should operate as if that's the relationship we're going to have with our children once they hit 18. Are they going to give us nothing back? So <laughs> we, we shouldn't let our lives be completely ruined by them. But I know, you know, lots more people are way more into their kids than we are. And like, they would, you know, sacrifice a lot of other things to make sure they spend as much time as possible with them. My main thing there is, you know, my wife and I basically agreed that pre-kids. That was our agreed sort of setup. A little bit like, yeah, communicating with the team on where they're going to be working. Just being as open as possible about what you both think about what you're willing to sacrifice. Because you're going to have to sacrifice things. That's that's the thing. If you've both got tough jobs and a couple of kids, you're going to have to sacrifice things. So is it money to pay for loads more childcare? Is it time? Is it social life? Is it sport? Is it whatever it is? Like, you're going to sacrifice something, so you have to decide what it is. Yeah, for sure. That's really refreshing to hear. I think we live in a world now where there's a lot of pressure on parents to actually be present all the time. And I've got some of our investors, they talk to me and they say, it's amazing how I'm really trying to do this. When I was a kid, you know, my dad was broadly not around. I'm not excusing either way, right? I love your point about being comfortable with it and not letting other people influence you. I think that's the big trap. A huge amount of the stress, we've not talked about this on the show before, a huge amount of the stress comes from the difference in perspective you have between what you want and what you think you should do. (laughs) And it's something that's really refreshing to hear, actually, because no one should tell you how to parent your kids apart from you. Must be quite liberating in some ways to have had that conversation at the start. I'm certainly glad we did it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like sell that I've got some sort of dream parenting setup that works 100% of the time and my wife and I never argue about it. But that has been, in my view, something that we've got right. And I totally agree with you about the pressure to do things differently. and just trying to be as comfortable as possible. There are lots of ways to raise a child, right? And if you're really honest with yourself and you look at all your friends and your family and the backgrounds they'll have had, some of them will have a lot of parental help and engagement. Some will have had single parents who weren't around as much or, you know, because they had to work or whatever. Like, there are lots of amazing people with all of those different types of backgrounds and they've all turned out okay. So just because you work like one night doesn't mean your kids are going to turn out like total mess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd love to take us onto the startup side because one thing I was really itching to talk to you about is about what I call frustration-driven development. So I was reading your story about your journey to set up Urban Jungle. because It's actually really common. Technology-driven insurance companies in the world are driven from founders who had a terrible experience. I look at you, you had a great career already working as a consultant in a very successful business. And I'd love to talk to you about the moment of commitment from jumping ship, right? You decided to jump ship to the other side. And I'd love to know what was the point where you were like, I'm not looking back, we're going to do this. Yeah, very interesting question. I found that incredibly easy. Okay. Actually, and I think a lot of the time, a lot of what's written is when you quit your job is the riskiest possible moment. And I actually disagree. So I had a good job. I was good at it. Successful. If the startup had failed, I could have just gone back and done the same job again. I don't think it was that big a deal. I think what I would say, though, is that it should have been a bigger deal for a different reason. And I'm sure you'll appreciate this as well. Like You think a lot about what happens if it goes badly, but no one tells you about what happens if it goes well. The basic principle is, especially if you're a loss-making tech startup and you're venture-funded, people are investing in you. 
broadly speaking, you know, as the company gets bigger, there's more than you. But certainly in the early days, people are investing in you and only you, you know, when you're pre-revenue or whatever. So even if it's going quite well, you can never leave, which no one tells you that before you start. But it is really tough to leave. And when, you know, people leave successful businesses, that's in the headlines. It's like a big deal. It doesn't happen that often in the venture world. So understanding that and prepping yourself mentally for that is the one thing that I would do quite differently. Because, it, yeah, if it had all blown up and failed within six months, yes, I might have had a tricky six months, you know, working out how to pay the mortgage or whatever while I got another job. But broadly speaking, it would have been fine. What's much sort of trickier to deal with is particularly about sustainability of the job. So as we've already talked about, it's really hard. Like I've heard lots of founders say this when they're not trying to deal with children. It's just whatever you do, it's just a hard thing. It's very easy to do unsustainably because there's always more to do. You can just always just work, work, work constantly, stress, stress, stress constantly. There's always problems. So if you don't kind of try and approach it sustainably, then that's going to be tough. And I think, yeah, I basically you know had a word with myself probably three years in, so we're like four and a bit years in now, three years in, and I was like, you know what? This isn't that sustainable, what you're doing. You're working too hard or you're trying to worry about too many things. I think what's been nice as we get a bit bigger is I can delegate more, obviously. So I think I've made the mistake previously of being like, well, I'm really good at that. I don't need to hire for that. I can just do it myself. Whereas now it's like, my default is I should be doing nothing, basically. If I could be doing nothing, that would be amazing. And so hire with that in mind rather than just to fill skills gaps that you don't have. So yeah, the actual risk thing, I mean, perhaps just to answer your question a bit more directly about, you know, taking the leap and how do you take the leap? I think you've got to, at some fundamental level, really want to do it. I know a lot of people who have this anxiety that they should be starting a business because that's something that successful people do. And it's like one of the career paths. But it's such a difficult thing. Like you should at least have some view that A, you really want to do it and B, you might be quite good at it. There's something in you that you believe that you've got some edge that will make you good at it. And obviously that sounds incredibly arrogant, but I did think that. I thought one of the blessings of my job was we basically advise CEOs all the time. That's the job. And so I spent a lot of time with CEOs and I could probably met 50, 60 CEOs in that process, worked closely with that number of CEOs and I saw what they did, saw which ones were good and which, well, which ones I thought were good and which ones I thought were bad. And I thought I had some of the attributes to be one of the good ones. So everyone's always going to be a bit insecure. I don't want to suggest that I was certain that it was going to work or anything. Like I've had lots of anxiety about my ability to do it and my, you know, imposter syndrome and all of that stuff. But deep, deep down, when you search inside, you've got to know that basically one of two things, either that you will be good at it or that there's literally nothing else you can do, that you would be terrible at any other thing. And sometimes that works too. (laughs) That's a really, really powerful answer. And I think, you know, something that no one talks about, and I don't want this to sound like a humble brag, the times I have felt most trapped and most stressed in our business have been when there's been so much opportunity, I haven't known how to deal with all of it. And when we've been growing so fast that I felt completely out of control. Don't get me wrong, HX hasn't been up and to the right perfectly, but you know, the post-pandemic flat spots, they were stressful. Yeah, one that we didn't have any idea what the world was going to look like. That was stressful, but it was nothing like the infinite possibilities, like you were saying about all the things you can do and actually what to do. That's been the biggest stress for me. And no one talks about that. The point of quitting, like you say, that's actually nothing compared to the point when, like you say, other people can leave HX. <laughs> right? Michael and I, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk about your relationship with your co-founder, 
because Greg, your co-founder, it sounds like you were uni mates who used to live together. So yeah, we knew each other from university, we've never lived together. Uh, okay, cool. So that transition from friend to co-founder, you go through the highs and lows and all of the things that we talked about, the good bits and the bad bits you go through together. I'd love to know what that was like because Michael and I, my co-founder and I, we worked together, we were colleagues um, and we were friends, don't get me wrong. Like, we always joke, what will we do after HX? If there's an after HX, it's whiskey, cricket, all the things we used to do when we used to have social lives. But it's probably quite different, I suppose, that transition. I'd love to know a little bit about how your relationships changed. Yeah, so we kind of knew each other at university. I was at uni with his wife and knew Greg from the odd party. You know, we knew a bit about each other and we took it quite slowly in the beginning. So before we even decided to go full time, you know, we spent quite a lot of time together. But even when we went, live we didn't really know each other that well and people that knew both of us thought it might work you know i guess it's a little bit like a sort of arranged marriage chat there i guess something i don't know it's been remarkable how well it's worked and i guess if there's a lesson in there it is that we are very different and one of the reasons that works so well is that we've just never got in each other's way so he's you know technically brilliant I can input very little in terms of our technical decisions, but also he's a really good operator. So he is amazing. He used to work in a kind of very operational job at both Google and Facebook. And there's a lot of, you know, skills learned there, but I think it's the personality type as well. Like if I ask him to do something, he'll do it immediately because that's just how he thinks. And that's how he's a super operationally focused and customer service and all that stuff. He's always been, I just don't have to worry about it at all. Whereas... I'm much more into like, you know, how do we prioritize all the work we're going to do? How do we find commercial opportunities? I'm much more salesy. Things that he would sort of stick his nose up at around like culture and he's into, into it and supportive, but you know what I mean? He's not going to be the guy who's running all that. So my advice to picking a co-founder, I think it could be a risk that you would just pick someone who was your friend, who was similar to you, who you had a lot of common interests with, whereas actually what you want is someone who's complementary to you. The thing that we do really have in common and is quite similar is a risk appetite. So we're very aligned from the beginning that we didn't want to hedge on building a really small company. So it was like, let's go, let's build a big company. Let's make decisions that are aligned with that in terms of the way we raise money and the way we prioritize things. I think that could have been a problem if we didn't have that alignment. And we are quite similar in that way, but in almost every other way, we're very different. Again, a very powerful insight. Like you say, you want it to be nicely disjoint where the overlap is only in the areas that you need it to be rather than in the areas that you don't. Candidly, the other thing is there's so much to do that it's thoroughly inefficient, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To have totally. people that want to do that. So we don't talk about that enough on the show about the co-founder relationship. Like you do, I have a fantastic relationship with my co-founder. But does everyone talk about one of the biggest sources of failure to find product market fit if you're doing something speculative? It's actually co-founder relationships collapsing. That feels like such an alien, alien thing. Don't want to assume that everything's going to be perfect all the time, but it's one of those things that you really do take for granted, I think. Let me jump onto the magic question, which is, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? I, again, have a reasonably strong feeling that I wouldn't necessarily want my kids to follow in, in my footsteps and become an entrepreneur. Oh, hey, that's unusual. Yeah, well, as in, I just want them to go their own way. So, you know, knowing them so far, especially the older one, it doesn't seem like it would be the kind of things they're very interested in, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, and also, I'm like, I'm a Welshman, so... 
basically, I'd be much happier if my kids were like starting for the World Rugby <laughs> team than if they, they started a business. But um, I think the big lesson that I've had and the thing that I think has gone well is the way that we think about people when we hire them, which is not as some sort of resource who's filling a gap for you, bringing in skills that you don't have, but always operating on the assumption that the best people will have a ridiculous number of options. So the best people can work anywhere. So what you're actually doing is they are lending you their time for a period of time and you are paying them some money for that, sure, but it's your privilege to be paying them the money to do that. And so you have to work really, really hard on delivering an experience for them that is more than just the money, that is a lot of learning, a fun environment. So A, you should do that. And I think a lot of people do try and do that. But I think the insight is telling them that that is what you are doing (laughs) is the interesting thing I've learned. So everyone is essentially at all times assessing themselves against their own kind of hero's journey type thing where they started, they had a rough life for some reason or other. And basically they're like, you know, fighting against that. Their problem could be that they don't have any experience of doing anything, but it could be that they, you know, don't have, they're not connected. Well, like whatever the problem is, they're like, they have some concept of, I want to start here in my life and get here. And I want where I get to, to be better than where I am now, where better could be measured in wealth, it could be measured in time, opportunity, whatever it is, right? And so it's much easier for me to tell our team the story of how this job is going to make them super employable or it's going to be super fun, they're going to progress super fast, than it is for them to sit there themselves having never seen how a person in that same sort of job can develop and tell themselves that story. And if you operate in that way, it does change what you do a lot. So when you write someone's review, you write it in that context. It's like, here's where you are on your own hero's journey. Here's how we're going to get you to the next bit of the hero's journey. Not, hey, I asked you this thing, didn't do it very well. And when you have that kind of way of organizing your thoughts and way of thinking about team and way of thinking about development, that's when you get to potentially good results from some very strong people to exceptional results from some amazing people. That's quite a wishy-washy thing, I guess, but that is one of the big insights that I've had. I think that's incredibly powerful. I always joke that this show is my free founder coaching. <laughs> if I think, you know, one of the things, if you're trying to build one of the best companies in the world, you're not selecting people who fit into the average. And you have to think a little bit about the supply demand balance for people like that. And actually your point about their own hero journeys were really powerful. That's going into my own personal list. So thanks for the lesson for free there. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're not paid for the coaching, but that's really, really compelling. Amazing. Well, look, Jimmy, before you go, well, you know how we wrap up with our usual feature startup shout outs, where we shine a light on someone or a company in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup shout outs. Can we close off with your startup shout out, please? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're actually a co-investment of one of our angel investments. So I've known them for a little while and I just think they're always really underappreciated. So the business called Keynest. And they do a very simple thing with some neat tech, which is they manage keys for property owners. So they started off, it was just Airbnb hosts. They Basically, they put a key box in your local news agent, and then they have some neat tech that helps you manage who can access the keys so they can unlock the lockers remotely, and then they manage the whole keys. And it sounds like 
niche market, quite small thing. Turns out, massive problem for loads of people. And the nice thing about this angel investor is that they also angel invest in a whiskey bar. And every Christmas, basically, he puts a bit of money behind the bar for all of his angel founders to go and have drink whiskey together. So I basically catch up with the founders of that business once a year over a whiskey. And whenever I see them, they've always gone and achieved amazing things. So yeah, we thought it'd be good to give them a shout out. That's wicked. My second favorite thing about that is that I've learned now that I need to go find this angel and see whether I can get a small check so I can get the whiskey pass because that's, that's an amazing perk. I tell you, like, people say, like, how do you get deal flow as an angel? <laughs> it is absolutely the best hack I've ever seen. And also, like, you know, if we're ever negotiating on, like, does he get his pro rata allowance? Yeah. I will not put the whiskey bar <laughs> party at risk. Like, obviously, he gets his pro rata allowance in any round we're doing because I'm not going to risk annoying him. Uh, that's brilliant well i think that is a fantastic way to end a really awesome show that a real brilliant balance between the startup life the dad life thank you for your honesty and for sharing your story with us yeah great well really nice to meet thanks very much for having me on awesome many thanks to today's guest you'll find links to them and their work in the show notes it would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague so if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable please pass it on to them if you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 